Hey listeners, it's Keith from Evertrue. Evertrue is the end-to-end solution for insight, outreach, and analytics for higher ed advancement and stewardship teams around the world. Recently, we launched Evertrue Studios, Advancement's very first media hub, where subscribers have access to over 100 hours of free, on-demand original series and podcasts, all created with fundraisers in mind. Check us out at evertrue.com backslash studios. Hey, listeners, I'm Kim Naoni, and this is Mentorship Matters, a podcast that examines the current and future landscape of fundraising leaders and the power of inclusive mentorship in advancement. Today, I'm here with Brent Swinton, Vice President for Philanthropic Engagement at Bowie State University in Maryland. And the subject for our discussion today is the future of advancement at HBCUs. Welcome, Brent. How are you doing today? Good afternoon, Kim. Thanks for having me. Doing great. Excellent. Excellent. First of all, before we get started, I just want to give you and your team a big congratulations. Uh, You've been on campaign mode and two years to go. You're ahead of schedule because you've met that goal. So what does that feel like? It feels great being in Bowie, Maryland, and particularly at Bowie State University, which is located halfway between Baltimore and Washington, D.C., uh, it's a great time to be affiliated with our campus and with our campus uh, community. Uh, as you mentioned, we are in a campaign, um, as many of us are across the, the sector. Um, we went into our public phase December of 2021 at the height of the pandemic, um, but I was brought on board to execute the next comprehensive campaign for Bowie State University. Um, their last one ended in 2014. And, um, you know, who knew we were going to have the pandemic? And I should say the dual pandemics of, you know, post George Floyd, as well as the actual pandemic. But what we did is we leaned into the these two very tough situations, um, leaned into technology, and we were already doing a lot of the right things with respect to upgrading our philanthropic business processes. And so, yeah, we had a $50 million campaign goal, um, which was by far the most ambitious that Bowie State had ever undertaken. Uh, and at the close of fiscal year 23, which just ended a few weeks ago, uh, we ended up hitting that $50 million goal. And we still have two and a half years to go on our campaign. So we're going to keep going and we're going to accelerate through that, that goal. Uh, $50 million is not a finish line. It's a mile marker. But we're going to keep going. Love that. Love that. You know, in the past few months, years, uh, you know, since uh, George Floyd, it's been a thing of beauty to see the growth and excitement in, uh, in, uh, in the HBCU space. And the folks looking back and thinking about how they can invest in, in these institutions that really matter and and help and and serve the community uh in in and especially the black community in very meaningful way in uplifting social mobility uh you know i'm a big fan of the some of the work that coach prime did from the sports perspective to elevate the sporting side of it and the jackson state but then i'm also encouraged by folks like yourself your colleagues at howard and other institutions that are really putting in work to invest in the future of education opportunity at HBCUs. Uh, recently here, uh, you know, you and your colleagues were attending the HBCU uh, Philanthropic Symposium in DC, yep. and a, a collection of all the great minds uh, that do this work. T- talk to us briefly about 
the energy uh, you know, around there and what, what sort of the thought leaders are thinking about the future is for uh, philanthropy uh, at HBCUs? Yeah, so the HBCU Philanthropy Symposium is an annual event. Shout out to Dr. Vita Pickram, who is the VP at Delaware State. Uh, this is her brainchild, and it's been going on for, I believe, about 13 years. The last three years, they've moved the conference from Delaware over to National Harbor here in the D.C. area, which is in uh, my backyard. So it, that was awesome, but it's also made it uh, much more accessible for um, MSI and HBCU advancement teams to get to the conference. So it's really grown um, with the support of their president, Dr. Tony Allen, and um, their, their sponsors. Um, as you said, this is a great gathering of the minds that are actually in the trenches raising funds for HBCUs. Um, you and I and others are part of, you know, case conferences. I just presented at um, uh, an R&L conference in Nashville. So there's all kinds of conferences where people come together and share best practices and, you know, present ideas. But this is pretty unique in as much as this is a philanthropy symposium specifically for um, the advancement of HBCUs. So, it's, you know, if for no other reason, just to be able to be in that space that's right. about these very unique institutions that built the Black middle class and, you know, to this day um, are producing more uh, graduates of color um, in so many areas and uh, have just advanced, you know, life, uh, American life for so many citizens. Um, it's just, it's incredible what HBCUs have done uh, with relatively few resources over the past 150, 55 years. No, those are great words, my friend. So you served at uh, traditional institutions and for a long period of time have led programs within HBCUs. Uh, perhaps you can talk to us about your career as a fundraising leader within HBCUs and beyond and what specifically, I want to hone in uh, in this part of your journey as it relates to HBCUs, what makes it a fulfilling journey for you? Yeah. So for a little bit of context for your audience, um, I am uh, one that firmly believes that nobody grows up saying, oh, I want to be a fundraiser. Um, it's one of those things that the vast majority of us have just found themselves in this life. And, you know, when you catch that bug, when your um, ability to ask people to invest in something important um, pays off, then you find yourself, you know, in this career, um, but you never thought about it when you were growing up. So for me, um, Bowie State University is my second HBCU, but I've actually been a fundraiser my whole life and have worked, as you mentioned, uh, in state institutions, private institutions. Uh, I was even assistant vice president at an all-girls Catholic university in Baltimore. Um, and so that was always fun, uh, being introduced to the audience of, <laughs> of, of alumni um, to say, here's someone who's going to come and talk to you all about the importance of investing in Catholic womanhood and education. And then this brother, <laughs> this big burly brother comes out, right? Um, yeah. But we always played that, um, you know, for laughs. And it actually, you know, I'm grateful for that opportunity to, um, you know, to prove, you know, my longstanding maxim that fundraising is both an art and a science. 
And, you know, on the science side, and this is something that I said at the HBCU symposium, and I say in many of my presentations, you know, the science side is what's universal. And so being at an all-girls Catholic school, and that was after my tenure, um, my long tenure at Howard University, um, the math is the same. The math has to keep mathing, right? And exactly. If you know your stuff, if you understand the principles of fundraising, if you understand, you know, your your donor segmentation, if you're data driven, then you can be successful anywhere. However, ellipsis, pause, <laughs> mm -hmm. there is such thing as culture. And yes. every institution has its own flavor, its own culture. And as wise people know, it's great to have, you know, the science down pat and to have your strategies, but culture eats strategy for lunch. I think that's a famous quote. Um, all day, every day. All day, every day, right? So even though you got your math mathing, you also have to come in and respect that there is a, a there is a how you do things. Why you do things um, is, is kind of universal. The things that you need to do, the functions that you need to make sure are um, happening in your shop, regardless of what type of institution it is, but how you go about communicating, you know, these are the changes that need to happen, or these are the ways that we need to communicate with our audience, that you you need to humble yourself and come into every situation as a student of the culture. Um, I think it took a year for the folks at Howard to be like, all right, Brent's pretty cool. He, he's one of us. He didn't graduate from, from HU, but, you know, he's bleeding um you know you know red and blue so he he's fine and, and when I when I left Howard um they were very kind and in you know in saying that I had adopted the culture and then I walked into a situation where there were very few people of color um particularly in the alumni base and you know again I'm a male um and the same thing I humbled myself and became a student of the culture even as I knew that there were changes and things that I, I could upgrade according to the science, but that's the art of dealing with people. It's very relational um, being a fundraiser. And so what does this all have to do with the future of HBCU fundraising? Um, I think that both bars have to be held high. Um, we always hold the bar high that there's nothing like an HBCU, the family, the culture, that feeling of taking care of our students. Um, I think that's universal. Um, so universal that it's actually, in my opinion, not a distinguishing point from one HBCU to another. Um, I think HBCUs, as we you know, get further into the 21st century, need to also distinguish themselves by being centers of excellence in something else other than we got a rocking homecoming. Um, you exactly. need to also be, you know, known for your nursing school or known for producing engineers, known for something specific in addition to um, the value add of it being a, an HBCU, which is still so needed in our nation. And I won't get into the politics of the day, but the Supreme Court is letting all of us know that we have not solved some of the questions stemming from the, the 40s, 50s, and 60s, we just kind of put it on pause. Um, and so this is a safe space for anyone to come, um, including non-African-Americans, um, to matriculate. But in addition to all of that good culture, HBCUs and specifically 
fundraising shops at HBCUs also need to hold the standard of the, the science of what you're doing. Um, you know, what's your mission um, mm -hmm. for the fundraising team? Are you as strong in everything that you do as your PWI counterparts? Or are you saying, well, we have less resources and so, you know, and then there's that, that, that lower expectation. Me personally, and doesn't, you know, I know I'm stepping on, I may step on toes, but, you know, you're going to get what you're going to get. I believe that whether you're at an HBCU, MSI, PWI, community college, right. high school, independent school, there are certain parameters around fundraising. And we fundraisers need to have a professional level or standard of excellence. And then if you happen to be at, again, my personal mission in HBCU, well, those standards still apply. Absolutely. But they don't change. They, they don't, don't change. Just, you don't just, you just say, oh, well, we're here uh, in this institution. And, oh, yeah, we're not going to be donor-centric. Oh, yeah, we're going to run a sales shop. Or we're not going to think strategically about how we build up our shop. Last time I checked. Or we're going to uh, ignore the data. Exactly. Ignore the data. Data tells you it doesn't matter what type of school you're at. Data tells you where your audience is. It tells you what your alumni are thinking, and 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 you know, anecdotal evidence is is fine um, to help sort of balance your your vision. But you need qualitative data, and the idea that sometimes we allow professionals to sort of fester on staff. We teach our audience that we are not quite up to snuff. Um, one of the things that would kill me here and when I was at Howard is when Black people would say, you know, my other institution where I got my other degree, you know, they did this, they did that, and you all don't do that. Um, my life's mission is to, to make statements like that untrue. Um, and, you know, sometimes... We, we individual situation but sometimes as, as i have gotten to know people across the country no sometimes we just don't do things because you know there's a lack of resources and so we just let it drop and donors don't deserve that mindset donors no deserve, no we don't yeah donors deserve um excellent fundraisers across the board including supporters of hbcus yeah and you got to understand that you got to compare apples to apples you know you can't go and say an institution that has an endowment of, you know, $5 million, $10 million uh, should be uh, expending resources and stewardship and things like that, like an institution that has, uh, you know, a, a, a billion-dollar endowment. I mean, I've had conversations with, with donors and they say, you know, I'd much rather give money to an institution where my dollar can move the needle. And I'm not expecting to get this trinket, to get this gold plated, uh, I don't know, tie clip or what have you. Uh, I'd rather you save that money and spend it to, you know, towards something else. And so uh, I, it, it always gets me too when people do the the comparison, uh, you know, with the institution. So I, you know, it's, yeah, you make a good point. And uh, we've talked about this uh, uh, subject that I wanted to bring up, which is the the difference between strategy at a traditional PWI mm -hmm. and at HBCU. I mean, the bottom line is, Integrity is integrity. Vision is vision. 
And that vision may vary based on the institution that you're part of, you know, so a certain HBCU that focuses on technology and science, they have a certain vision that that informs the kind of fundraising that they do. And so their strategy is going to evolve around that. Uh, but, you know, do you see a distinct difference outside of the size and scope of mm -hmm. uh, fundraising programs at a PWI? And then compare that to HBCU. Because from my perspective, I think the difference is the you know you have a state flagship, or you may have a large research university that their main mode of existence or reason to exist is to do a lot of research at a high level. And then you have an institution that may be an HBCU that somewhat is research oriented, maybe not, but they have a distinct mission that's focused on education and that that yeah. caters towards a, a certain segment of the population. So the approach there to me, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the strategy of the, how do you, uh, may slightly vary, but the principles of fundraising remain the same. What yeah, the principles, you know, I, I, I speak in terms of function. I, I have conversations with my direct reports almost daily about making sure that the functions are in place. So to your point, um, and I and I don't want anybody under the uh, who can who can hear this or under the sound of my voice to think that I am ignoring the atrocious lack of of funding and access to to high dollar and high net worth individuals that HBCUs have experienced, including public funding from states that would go against their own laws and policy um, to divert funding away from HBCUs to their flagships. That's happened in too many states to mention. Um, so I get that. My my principle, and I'm, I'm getting to your question, my principle is, is that, so for example, you just mentioned research, all right? Every shop needs research. For my shop, that's one person, mm -hmm. right? So I need to make sure that this person has all of the resources, training, and technology available to amplify their expertise because right down the street at the state flagship there are 70 75 people who work in the research shop yep very familiar with that my my goal is that we have good research commiserate with the one staff that i have right yep you go to some hbcu shops and that one function, you know, which is part of the spectrum of things that need to happen, may be missing. But yet and still, there are a lot of institutional investments made towards, and I'll just pick on something, you know, let me let me be controversial, towards homecoming. Oh, yeah. And then homecoming. Oh, yeah. You're going to go there. <laughs> yeah. Homecoming has a, a, a great ROI in a lot of places, but not all places. But just about all HBCUs spend a lot of money on their homecoming. So my challenge to the sector is homecoming should be high ROI for all of us because of the mission, the need, and the potential for uplift that happens from, HBC, from, from HBCU homecomings. So again, I'm not picking on any one institution, but you know, behind the veil, and I know what I know. I come from a FAMU family really deep. I grew up down the street from the AU Center in Atlanta. I've served at two HBCUs. I know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. 
all homecomings should be cash infusion and resource infusion and mentor infusions and internship infusions for all HBCUs. And that is not the case. So if that's not happening, then I think strategic analysis needs to happen to say, well, where should we be investing? So there should be a research component. And I'm not talking about faculty research. I'm talking about, you know, researching potential donors. Yeah, from the that, prospect. That, that has to happen, whether it's one prospect researcher like what I have or a team of analysts like the, the PWIs have. Same thing with stewardship. Customer service, customer service, customer service. People are always asking me, Brent, how did you all hit $50 million and you still have two and a half years to go? You know, I can narrow it down to four or five things. And mm -hmm. customer service is at the top of that list. I came in and created an office of stewardship and engagement. Engagement means actively relating to people, not just passively calling yourself alumni relations. That's right. And stewardship, that is actively saying, I am stewarding the people who are already under the tent because they've given to some degree. And I'm helping the development team steward and cultivate prospects. So we're not just feeding people homecoming weekend and other events and then letting them walk out the door with nothing. No, they're going to walk out of the door understanding our mission and understanding the, the many, many opportunities that they can invest either their time, their talent, or treasure towards this mission. So stewardship is another, I would call it, pillar of you know the science of fundraising that I think that each HBCU should have. And if you are so resourced that you could have a whole stewardship team, great. Go if for you it. Got one person. But I think stewardship is another one. So you've got stewardship, you've got then the, the prospect research or advancement services function. You got to be really, really tight also on your financial um, data. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so, that, so many of us have advancement services, um, maybe even a foundation office if we're a state institution. Um, and then, of course, you've got your fundraising acumen, right? So if you've yeah. only got five people to work in your advancement shop, my recommendation is that's your five people, and they all need to be A++ players if that's all you have. Meanwhile, there's other institutions that each one of those functions exist, but they're all like huge departments. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, the dirty secret of fundraising is, you know, there are people who make a decent, a, a fair a fair living. Um mm -hmm just kind of hidden because they're mm -hmm. one of 100 people on the development team or one of 50 people on the stewardship team or the alumni team. All right. That's never been my, um, you know, I've never worked in shops like that. I've always worked in, in places that were, you know, teams of 20 or less. Um, yep. So you've got to have a players, but those are, you know, the functions that I'm talking about and what helps everybody is technology. Technology is the difference of having 10 frontline fundraisers, 50 frontline fundraisers, or just one. You now can transact, you now can relate, you can now cultivate and steward people on Zoom, like we're talking today, across the country, as mm -hmm. opposed to relying on your travel budget and you know flying across the country. I just met someone from another institution just yesterday who was telling me about a prospect, um, you know, out in Chicago that they had to fly to go see 10 times before they closed a seven figure gift. And yeah, I don't like, need to do that. Great. 
Yeah, I was like, that's great. That uh, that could never happen anywhere I've worked because we don't have it like that. However, I love the fact that there's technology where we can we can relate to these people, engage them in different ways. So here at Bowie, another reason why our campaign was just kickstarted and, and just went into hyperdrive is because during the pandemic, we ended up being able to touch more people through technology like this um, than we were doing prior with face-to-face -face meetings. Of course, we're back now. Face-to-face -face meetings are happening. I don't have a lot of gift officers under me, but it is my expectation that we use technology and face-to-face, -face, whatever the donor is comfortable with, to, you know, again, make sure that we're executing the science of fundraising, um, yeah. but also being, you know, culturally sensitive. Absolutely. Um, I, can't, I can't just bring on somebody on my staff who absolutely has no appreciation for, for uh, HBCU alums and, you know, those nuances therein, because there are oh, yeah. a lot of nuances. No, and 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 I think you know j just to 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 kind of you know summarize that that point from my perspective and understanding, I've had this conversation with a number of HBCUs, you know, just as they're advising them on how to deal with fundraising, and oftentimes they'll come back and say, "Man, you know, but you you've worked at these sophisticated institutions with big budgets and uh, you know raising hundreds of millions of dollars, we can't really aspire to that." I said, "No, I'm not asking you to aspire to be." name a big university that raised 500 million dollars a year that's not your race they're running their race mm -hmm. what i want to tell you is that there are certain key ingredients to a successful development our shop that right. that comes down to structure you know do you have plan giving do you have annual giving do you have stewardship do you have donor relations do you have alumni engagement do you have cfr corporate foundation relations okay that could be seven people Okay, it doesn't have to be a, a, a village of of thousands or hundreds of people in some places like the shop I used to work at over 300. You don't have to do that. Wow. You know, you scale it down to what are the basic functions that I need for this yeah. institution with the budget that I have and everybody that comes in is an A plus player who's going to come in and love the institution, understand your mission. And knowing that if I'm coming in, whether I'm the VP, I'm the director, I'm going to have to wear five hats and I'm going to have to work hard because that's what it's, it's called. It calls for in this institution. And so I've been trying to help some of our brothers and sisters to dispel that myth that, oh, well, you know, we can't be like UGA. We can't be like this institution. No, no, no. You don't need to be like them. You need to be like the best version of you with what you have. Yep, yeah, scale do that. scale to your needs. Scale's important. Yeah, and so and, and 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 you know one of the other functions that you did mention again, I I got to shout out Advancement Services. A strong back office makes everything else you just said happen that much easier. And in this new age, you might not have enough um, to do an FTE for let's say one of those functions. So you know, go back to your institution and see what you can work out with contracted or vendor services. So I, I, I'm aware of a colleague that their entire advancement services operation is actually contracted out because they don't have the economy of scale of a real, you know, of a fully functioning um, development office, as you just laid out. Those seven or five, you know, people, they don't even have that many. So they, they have contracted out their entire advancement services. And I'm not saying that that is optimal, but I'm using that as an example to say, 
even with a lack of resources, be clear on what absolutely, you call them ingredients, I call them functions, that have to happen. And then from there, build out. Um, And, you know, the excuse that, well, it's not an excuse, it's a reality. The reality that, you know, you're not working in a place with 300 plus in the division that's that's the reality, but that doesn't mean that you can't take the HBCU to a higher level, um, just because you you're not granted 300 people. I mean, for the size of what we've raised, I'm I'm currently supervising less than 20 people, and I've restructured every single year that I've been here to keep refining and chipping away so that my machine is mostly fundraisers. Um, or not mostly, but we, if, if we have, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to grow to 20 positions in the next, in, in, in the short term. And I'd like for 10 of those positions to be, um, you know, to have a, a revenue goal and yes. then everybody else's support function. Um, I think for us and this institution and all of the untapped potential, we still haven't reached even a 10th of what I believe this institution could do because of where we're located. Um, and because of, just the people that are graduating from here, but, you know, getting to 20 FTEs in my division soon, um, hopefully in the next couple of years, and having 10 of those actually have goals, I think that's the right size for this institution. For some of our smaller institutions that may not be in an area where the alums stay and earn high salaries, like we have here at Bowie State, you know, the balance and the size may be different, but take away the scale, the ingredients should be right. So to your point, you know, the it's almost like a, a franchise restaurant or a, a, a chain, right? You know, right. they're producing, you know, let's say Popeyes or KFC, they're producing, you know, tons of chicken every day, but there's one recipe no matter where you go in the country, mm-hmm. right? Then you go to mom's kitchen, she's just doing one meal. Absolutely. The quality is just as good because she's using a very similar recipe. That's what I'm asking my my colleagues to understand is like the recipe is universal. That's the science. And yeah, yeah, the art is going to give us the flavor, you know, because when I have been at PWIs, I have missed homecoming. I have missed. There ain't ain't nothing like a HBCU homecoming. There's nothing like it. it. And I'm talking to, you know, talking to a gentleman here who went to Nebraska. I'm a Nebraska alum. And yeah, we talk about homecoming, my man. Y'all think that's homecoming? Right. Go to HBCU homecoming and then come yep. talk to me. That's yep. a whole different ball game. And that's I think, you know, you, you're, you know, I, I want to applaud you again, you and your team. I mean, you're a prime example of what, what I talk about when I, when I advise our colleagues in terms of how do you scale up with what you have, you know, what you have and owning the responsibilities and, 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 and the vision empowers everybody to jump in and, work for the mission and look at you. You know what I mean? You, you all, your campaign, over $50 million. There are institutions that have twice your size of staff and much bigger that cannot even crack 10 million. Okay. Yep. When they run campaigns, they run small campaigns. So again, it's, I want our audience to understand. It's a demonstration that HBCUs can make this happen. HBCUs are now more than ever. The country needs HBCUs to be the, the prime leaders in education and the opportunities there. So as we get to the uh, other half of our program here, we have talked about challenges, you know, 
budgets yep. and things like that, you know, scaling up uh, mission, understanding that mission and owning that mission. But, you know, and we've also talked about the silver linings uh, that we see in terms of the opportunity. You know, uh, the alumni base is well engaged. They're looking for a reason to be supportive. They're looking for us to 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 give them a, a, a reason for them to invest in their HBCUs across the country. So those are great silver linings. But now and we also talked about, you know, the future, you know, so as we think yeah. about the future, you know, you talk about leveraging new technologies of what you've done. I've been talking to people and trying to get people together in higher education space to really think about artificial intelligence. Yeah. And specifically, it is my contention that for institutions like HBCUs that cannot have a budget to hire a whole bunch of people and do all that, AI is going to revolutionize their ability yeah. to get fundraising done. What are your thoughts about that? And also just the general trends that you see and new pathways that'll impact positively uh, philanthropy and advancement as a whole in uh, HBCUs? Well, you know, there is a convergence of the, the, the subject that you just mentioned uh, with respect to where the growth has come from um, at Bowie State and many of the HBCUs who are seeing um, sort of a renaissance of, of awareness and attention. So like many others, um, post George Floyd, we are the beneficiaries of corporations and foundations realizing that there are more than five HBCUs in the country. And so a lot of our growth can be attributed to new investments from across the region or across the country rather, um, and even some international gifts um, that, you know, to be frank, were not available prior to now because of the national conversation um, that that happened around HBCUs. I'm, I'm forever grateful for the African-Americans and people of color in um, Fortune 500 corporations who were able to lift up HBCUs as a viable um, target for corporate social responsibility. And, you know, the first wave is always going to be the three to five you know, ones that everybody hears about, mm -hmm. um, you know, quite frankly, I worked at one of them and sometimes they can just wake up in the morning and back into money because of a strong name brand. Um, you know, no hate, just saying, you know, I say that a lot about a lot of, you know, PWIs as well. There's some places where I look at colleagues who are at these institutions um, and I'm like, wow, you never actually had to kill and eat what you kill, like you yeah, just, precisely. Like, yeah, I got I, you, you know, you start off an annual giving at Harvard or Stanford or Duke, you're gonna pretty much always be at an institution like that because you've got these colossal numbers under your belt. So there's a few HBCUs that are kind of like that relative to the rest of the HBCUs. And so I'm grateful that the country's attention for however long it lasts has been on, well, hang on, there's 101 HBCUs and it's not just those five you know, names. Um, and Bowie has been um, just really, really fortunate to have been on that wave um, and, you know, gotten the attention of, you know, for example, Mackenzie Scott and her, 
you know, flurry of giving. There were 16 institutions that were included and we were one of them. And, you know, we know that there was a litany of others. Um, you know, Reed Hastings um, of Netflix and the list goes on and on. I don't want to leave anybody out, but there's there's so much going on with respect to corporate and foundation major gifts. AI, because I do a lot of grant writing. I've just, I've always just done proposals and pitches and proposals and pitches um, in increasingly um, more responsible positions my entire adult life, literally since being a sophomore in college. And I see how, for example, just one example, AI could impact the, the sector um, with respect to being able to pull together proposals pretty quickly. I mean, you still need that human interaction in order to make sure that the information that AI has um, compiled on your behalf makes sense. But, you know, AI can kind of pull together a lot. And it's, um, you know, the jury is out on how successful someone would be to use, for example, chat GPT to get you know, pass a proposal deadline, but I know my my colleagues over on the faculty side are contending with the fact that yeah, these these tools, these platforms, this AI is impacting the academic arena. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I, as someone who matriculated prior to Google, you know, I'm like, man, these kids have it easy today. So yeah, I, imagine, I remember Ask Jeeves. I remember Ask Jeeves back. Oh man, I, that? I, I, look, I came in a little bit early. Ask.com. Ask Jeeves. Like, <laughs> no, I'm I'm old enough that it was like, go ask the librarian what floor can I go look up this book? There you um, go. So it's 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 um I imagine that this is gonna come at us pretty quickly. Um, the way that it's come at the faculty side, where you know, our funder is going to create different barriers or, um, you know, safety nets um, to ensure that people have thoughtful proposals that can be um, executed if, if selected and not just a compilation of, you know, Ask Jeeves or Google yeah. or AI. So that's that's one thing. And, and also, if it turns out that you can start crunching out proposals at a much higher rate because of AI, then what does that mean for the FTE that you're paying benefits for, benefits and overhead for? Like, do you, you know, source that out or do you, you know, I just, I think it has a lot of interesting. Well, well, I mean, you know, you, you, you know, you use them differently. I mean, I'll give you without giving too many secrets, but I'll give you a quick example, right? You know, you look at the three letter agencies, they all have these intelligence analysts. What do they yep. get paid to do? Well, those agencies have a myriad of tools that provide them raw data. So the analyst's job is to look at that raw data and uh, sort of make sense of it, okay? And when they make sense of it, whether it's going to the president or whoever, they say, okay, this is what we're seeing, and these are the recommendations for actionable items. So all of a mm -hmm. sudden, you know, you're short circuit the process of this person just crunching data and doing all that kind of stuff, and you're not getting accurate information. Uh, you know, most of the time the information is unreliable, and you have to spend time trying to sift through uh, the, the donor information to make a decision. So 
if you look at, uh, you know, uh, the example from from that sector, you know, there is that. I mean, there are ways in which it doesn't mean that people are going to lose their jobs. It just means that we're going to utilize people differently. They're going to have yeah. to upskill, cross-skill, do all that kind of stuff. And then the other part of it, uh, you know, talking HBCUs, giving a shout out to Morehouse, because I'm, uh, you know, I'm aware about two years ago, Morehouse College, they had this uh, African-American history class in the metaverse. Yeah. Okay. And so imagine that immersive experience of students uh, sort of, uh, you know, facing, experiencing what it was like to go through the journey of a slave, what it was like yeah. to to live in the South, uh, you know, in, in a certain era where, you know, there's segregation was king. That is an, that to me presents a great opportunity for engagement for those who may not be able to come to campus. And like that. So I think. As far as I look at trends, uh, I, I think of, of uh, you know, the impact of the metaverse, the impact of AI beyond just ChatGPT and the, and the writing, but in really looking holistically at empowering institutions that don't have a, a, a seemingly yeah. bottomless pit of money to be able to say, you know what, we may be small and we always talk about small and mighty, but we're going to get it done. We're going to get it done and reach and exceed those goals because we're working smarter and we have data that helps us get to the end point faster rather than just counting on scale. When we yeah. all know that hiring people is a challenge, keeping people is a challenge, and that's going to be a continuing challenge moving forward because budgets in advancement are not going north, they're going south. And no. donors are wanting to see more of their dollar getting spent on impact of philanthropy rather than on, you know, taking care of operational needs. So. And I don't want to lose your your very good point about whatever the technological advances are, they are not necessarily the end of positions. It's just, again, a reallocation of resources. So I'm already aware of, and not going to give away some of my state secrets, but are using AI to a degree um, in um, fundraising for individuals because there are vendors who will work with you and you know sell you their product that actually combs through your data and prepares um, sort of the, the punch list of who you need to be working on day to day, month to month, um, year to year, the way that an analyst might do for a frontline fundraiser if you were you know staffed with every single position that you could possibly want. And I love your um, example of that uh, metaverse history class um, that was presented in Morehouse, because when that happened, there was also discussion, and I'm sure that there is some entrepreneurial person right now about to roll out that same service. Right now, most campuses have, well, I shouldn't say most, many campuses have invested in drone technology um, in order to uh, create 3D tours that alums and, per, and prospective partners can tour the campus, you know, if they go to the website of the institution. Taking that a step further, as that technology is refined more and more, and you're able to, for example, use the metaverse to actually walk into a building and, and get on the elevator and, and walk to the lab and then go down to the football field and, you know, come up to the lunchroom. As that becomes more and more immersive, that is a way if a school and you know a, a under-resourced school is thinking strategically um, about where to invest, that is something that pays for itself um, 
10 times over because now you're able to give a tour to someone that just doesn't have the wherewithal to get on a plane and come see you. And you're not putting your team on a plane with, you know, folders and binders or even a PowerPoint. And I remember when, you know, going on a donor visit with a PowerPoint was the latest and greatest. You know, oh, now yeah. we don't even have to do that. Let's let's meet in the metaverse and I'll give you a campus tour. Um, exactly. And so that's on the horizon. Um, and I, you know, I fully embrace it. And to your point, then when that happens, then maybe that is a budget reliever that I can then use to, for example, hire another frontline fundraiser. Mm -hmm. People at HBCUs, like at any company, just need to be really smart about what technology investments can end up paying for themselves and being budget relievers in other ways. And then you take that savings and you invest back in your team. You know, maybe it's technical training, maybe it's another position, but, you know, I'm still on our, you know, our shared rant of just because you don't have all the resources that you want doesn't mean that you can't more wisely use the resources that you have. So Amen. using the metaverse and using AI, I think, is, is you know, two more examples of leaning into technology um, to get, you know, to, to compete with the big boys. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, as we uh, wrap up uh, this wonderful episode, you and I could talk about this for days on end. Yeah, uh, I, I, I enjoy yeah. getting to nerd out on something that most people are not interested in at all. But you know what? They're going to be interested after hearing this because you're, you're a great example of a leader who's thinking uh, forward and who uh, is thinking about the future uh, and really passionate about HBCUs. So I as I come to a close here, I want to offer you an opportunity to give a shout out to one of your mentors. I know you have a mentor. So real quickly, who was your mentor and how they impacted you and your journey as a leader? Wow. You know, I would say one of the biggest deficits of my life is that I don't have that one sort of big brother or big sister mentor in the sector that has been that one rock for me. Um, and I know a lot of rock stars in our sector, they do have that. What I have done, and my mom actually said this about the contacts I've made in my personal life, um, in my professional life, there are people who I have taken them on as more, I've been an apprentice of theirs, um, or, you know, people that have just shown me the right way to do things, and I keep them, um, you know, in my, in my heart, and I keep them in my, in my iPhone, um, and, and so some of the people along the way, um, as far as in the HBCU sector, uh, I've always been able to bounce ideas off of a, a, a college friend of mine who ended up becoming a two-time HBCU president, and that's Dr. Um, Walter Kimbrough. Uh, shout out. Um, that's a former, great brother right there. Yeah, former uh, president at, at Dillard and also former president at Philander Smith. Um, he's a um, special advisor at Morehouse right now, and, I, and that brother's future is, you know, as bright as can be. Uh, I'm grateful that as he rose through the ranks in higher education, we have a personal relationship that I've always been able to just kind of bounce off of him some great ideas. Um, and then I have another person that I can kind of consider as my role model. Um, and, and, you know, she doesn't look like me, um, but I, I mentioned being hired to um, an all-girls Catholic school. Um, you know, how did that happen? You know, look at me. 
I'm not Catholic. Uh, definitely not, you know, just don't look like uh, any of the other people um, on that campus or in that that alumni base. But how did that happen with um, the, the vice president um, for fundraising at that time, um, Pat Bossy, um, we met, we clicked, and uh, I just feel like she's just been the consummate expert in all that she does. Uh, and I've kept her close um, in my professional career, even after leaving there. So between, you know, brother, Dr. Kimbrough mm -hmm. uh, and, and Miss Bossy, um, who again is, you know, not part of the HBCU community, but just an excellent fundraiser. Those are two people that um, have kind of served in that role as role models. Um, but I, I, I really do encourage everybody to go get a formal mentor. Uh, and I've tried to mentor people. Um, I think there may be a few people out there that would say, yeah, you know, I, I consider Brent a mentor because um, as I've gone, you know, up the ranks, um, young talent is what we need, uh, not just in higher education fundraising, yep. but especially in HBCU fundraising. And, you know, good people tend to, you know, just how like you and I met good people who really know their stuff tend to uh, stick together. So, um, you know, I look at you as a role model, you know, I look at your career. Um, there's, there's many others. And so, um, yeah, I wish there was maybe one sort of grand special person that <laughs> was like actively making sure that um, the, the, the industry was treating me right, but I can be that for others. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Brent, it's been great. Enjoy the conversation and shout out to all the HBCUs out there. You know, don't, I don't want to name two and then forget the rest. Cause the, <laughs> don't do it. Cause, all, cause y'all matter. Cause y'all yep. matter. And, uh, you know, this episode is for you all. This episode is for you as HBCUs and the and the critical impact that you play in higher education here in America. And here's to a future of great success for historically black colleges and universities. Hey, and but, can I shout out all the people who are even at PWIs who are down for the struggle? Um, you and I know what that's like as well. Sometimes oh, yeah. when we talk about HBCUs or HBCU culture or black culture, it only is a conversation about HBCUs. And again, obviously, I, I think that they're more important now than ever. But shout out to the people who have struggled through to get their degrees at PWIs um, that have not always been safe spaces or you just don't, you know, you don't look like your environment. And shout out to those people who work for those PWIs in a variety of functions, um, just trying to, you know, make things right while they're there. Um, the struggle is real. So I'm shouting out mm -hmm. not just the HBCUs, but those who are down for the struggle wherever you may be planted. Well, there you have it, folks. I'm Kim Naoni. Thanks for tuning in to Mentorship Matters. See you soon.